Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Ah, Marillo. Any updates on the torso case? Ever leads a dead end. Or worse. Worse? Just the public going crazy and calling in everything they see. A woman called in to report some guy hacking away at bloody flesh by her house. And it was... Watermelon. Chief, we're not going to catch him like this. What do you suggest? A Ouija board? Let me go underground. I could dress as a transient, lure out the killer? Impossible. It's too dangerous. Chief, I... I said no. What's the word? Too dangerous. But he gave me this look. Like he was really saying, Pete, I don't want you to get killed, but you're no detective if you don't follow your gut. So, I'm going. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our second episode on the Kingsbury Run Murders, a series of mysterious and brutal slayings that plagued the slums of Cleveland in the 1930s. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. By September 1936, Cleveland had become obsessed with the torso killings. In only nine months, the scattered torsos and body parts of six victims had been found around the city, mainly centered in the rundown tenement area of Kingsbury Run. That month, two men were put in charge of the case, although at very different levels. Detective Peter Marillo was officially in charge of the police investigation. Above him was Cleveland's public safety director, former FBI legend Elliot Ness. Ness was technically in charge of the city's entire police department, but Mayor Harold Burton had personally asked him to bring in the killer. While both Ness and Marilla were dedicated to finding the torso killer, they had different approaches to the investigation and would end up with very different conclusions about the killer's identity. Elliot Ness's first act on the case was a bold gesture. On the night of September 12, 1936, he sent a fleet of policemen into the shanty towns of Kingsbury Run, rounding up every transient and drifter they found for questioning. It was a display of force intended to calm the city's fears and show that police were doing something about the killer. After all, there were still no major suspects after nine months of investigation. Elliot Ness needed to show Cleveland that he was on the case. 
And there was another purpose to the raids. While the police were looking for evidence and suspects, they could also attempt to identify their unidentified victims. Remember, only two of the six victims that had been discovered had been identifiable, which had proven to be a real problem with the investigation. If they couldn't ID a corpse, there was no way to find out the victim's history. This proved to be a major issue for the investigation, as it kept them from finding patterns which could have led them to the killer. The raids turned up nothing, but Ness was only just getting started. As part of his investigations into Cleveland racketeering, Ness had gotten Mayor Harold Burton to fund a team of investigators that answered only to Ness. The newspapers had dubbed them the Unknowns, a nod to Ness's famous untouchables that had tackled Al Capone's Chicago mob in the 1920s. While the papers were fascinated with the Unknowns, Ness did all he could to make Murillo the public face of the investigation. This made it easier for Ness to avoid any negative press if he wasn't able to solve what was proving to be a difficult case. So, while Marilla was publicly tracking down the killer, Ness had the unknowns secretly work the case, too. They spent their time double-checking the original investigation and tracking down every lead that they could find. Ness personally reviewed the victim's case files and interviewed all the lead detectives on the case. In contrast to Ness's approach, Marillo's methods were more personal and down-to-earth. He was known as a tenacious and diligent detective, the type of cop who would work a case into overtime if that's what it required. He was methodical and willing to do anything he could to find the killer. His first approach was to take his partner, Detective Martin Zalewski, and painstakingly chase down all the tips that the police had received about the killer. A steady stream of citizens had been coming into the department every day to give clues that they were sure would catch the killer. So the detectives had their work cut out for them. One man even claimed he'd been washing a shirt in the Cleveland suburb of Garfield Heights when he'd barely escaped being stabbed by a muscular man dressed in black, wielding a large, curved knife. Every one of those tips proved to be dead ends, but Marillo took the time to rule them all out. Marillo and Zalewski also investigated anyone in Kingsbury Run who seemed strange or suspicious, and the neighborhood had more than its fair share of strangeness to look into. Rumors spread that one of the victims, Edward Andresi, had been involved with a voodoo cult. Marillo took that rumor seriously enough to ask around. Excuse me, do you know where I could find various charms and magical artifacts? Perhaps something for hexing my enemies? Huh? Magical charms? You some kind of nut? Nut? Not at all. I just heard there's a group of people around these parts who could help me with such things. Practitioners of voodoo, if you will. Oh, oh no. Listen, buddy. I don't know why you're looking for those voodoo guys, but you better stop now. They're not worth messing around with, believe me. Wait a second. I'll tell you if they're worth my time. You tell me where I can find them. Never! After following up on these rumors, Marilla wrote in his notebook. It has long been suggested to us that voodooism may have been responsible for these killings. However, we were never able to learn its operation or rules or bylaws due to the fact that any person we approached to question and connection therein were apparently too frightened to reveal all the data we endeavored to learn from them. 
Murillo also investigated a cleaning woman's frantic call about one Dr. Antonio Longoria, who she reported had a bed that was wired with electricity and covered in bloody sheets. Local rumors held that the doctor had invented a death ray, but Murillo let Longoria go when he was satisfied that the man was only working to find a cure for cancer. On another day, he picked up a man who, despite the heat, was wearing two pairs of pants, three suit coats, two overcoats, and three caps over a wet towel. When the man was searched, his pockets were full of razor blades, knives, a homemade stiletto, a club wrapped in a woman's stocking, and dog's teeth. But he had only arrived in Cleveland after the killings had started, and thus couldn't be the killer. Murillo's theory was that the killer was a sexual pervert, so he also spent his time diving into the seedier side of Cleveland. For several weeks, he tracked the habits of a sadist known as the Chicken Freak or the Chicken Gardener. So, Mr. Chicken Freak, this poor, helpless little bird gets you going, huh? Look, I know it looks bad. Looks bad? How about is bad? You pay women to cut the heads off poor, innocent chickens just so you can... Look, that's... Admit it. That's what you do. Yes, yes, they kill chickens for me. That's all true. But I assure you, I have nothing to do with these murders. Humans and chickens are very different, and the sight of human pain just makes me queasy. We'll see about that. While the chicken freak confessed to hiring the sex workers, he claimed that he could never harm a human being. And Murillo found he wouldn't look at photos of the torso victims, claiming that they'd cause him to faint. Murillo must have believed him as he released the chicken freak after taking a statement of his chicken-killing acts. Murillo became convinced that he needed to go even deeper into the slums of Kingsbury Run if he was going to find the killer. So he asked permission from Chief Matowitz to go undercover in the slums as a homeless transient. Matowitz refused to authorize the plan, but Murillo did it anyway. In mid-October 1936, Detective Murillo stopped shaving for several days, put on his shabbiest clothes, and headed out one night to blend into the Kingsbury Run nightlife. He found nothing that night, but it was only his first of many undercover outings he'd take, against orders, for the rest of the investigation. By the end of October, Cleveland police heard about a seemingly related series of crimes in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, some 100 miles from Cleveland. In 1925, 10 years before the discovery of Edward Andresi, the first official victim of the Cleveland Torso murderer, three dismembered bodies had been found in a swampy area outside of town, earning this area the nickname the Murder Dump or the Murder Swamp. Then, on October 16, 1934, just over a month after the Lady of the Lake, potentially the first victim discovered in Cleveland, a fourth nude and headless body had been found in the murder swamp. Despite repeated searches of the swamp, no evidence of the culprit had ever been found. Newcastle police were unable to identify any of these victims, and the cases had gone completely cold. But in the last week of June 1936, shortly after the fourth victim of the Cleveland Torso murderer had been found, the only resident of the Newcastle Swamp, Oscar Wukovich, 
had noticed Hawk circling over a string of 23 abandoned boxcars. Acting on his tip, railroad inspectors went out on July 1st to check the boxcars. They found a man's naked, headless body lying face down on some newspapers, one of which was a copy of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. The killing was eerily similar to the torso killings with a clean, precise-looking decapitation, a missing head, and some bloody underwear found nearby. The body had been badly decomposed. The victim had likely been killed a full month before being dumped at the site. No one from Pennsylvania informed the Cleveland police about this slaying. Cleveland PD only heard about these killings when they read about them in the newspapers in October four months after the body was discovered. The similarities to the torso killings were obvious, so Ness sent his personal assistant, John Flynn, to Newcastle to check out the scene of the crime. Ugh, this is disgusting. Mind your shoes. Now, this is the place. We always figured it was a gang killing. That's what we thought all the other ones were. Just gangsters killing each other and hiding their heads to make it harder to identify. You think this is your guy? I don't know. But if there's another body, let us know about it. Officially, the Cleveland police's stance was that there was nothing definite to show that these murders were connected to the torso killings. But Marillo felt differently. The method of the murders and the fact that Kingsbury Run and the Newcastle Murder Swamp were connected by a railroad line that ran trains on that route twice a day were enough to convince Murillo that the crimes were connected. In Elliot Ness, Rise and Fall of an American Hero, Douglas Perry noted that Murillo wrote, Flynn returned to Cleveland a little dubious about the Newcastle torsos. He wasn't sure those murders had been committed by the man responsible for those here. I was sure. While Detective Murillo was convinced the Newcastle murders were connected, he would barely have time to fully investigate them. The bodies in Cleveland would only pile further up. We'll learn about the next corpses after this. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. By July of 1936, over half a dozen mutilated corpses had been found on, in, and around the Cleveland slums called Kingsbury Run. Similar murders had also occurred in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, and Detective Marillo, the lead detective on the case, was convinced that they were connected, despite a lack of concrete evidence. 
For months, newspapers ran headline after headline about the murders, riling up the public to put pressure on police to solve the murders quickly. The police interviewed hundreds of witnesses, and detectives like Marillo went undercover as transients to gain new information. Marillo would even hop trains and ride them to Newcastle and back, hoping to get new leads. Unfortunately, any leads the investigators found during this time wound up being dead ends. To make matters worse, on Tuesday, February 23, 1937, the upper part of a woman's torso was discovered on a beach at 156th Street. This was the torso murderer's seventh official victim, and she was found in almost the exact same location as the torso of the Lady of the Lake, the unofficial first victim of the torso murderer, who had washed up in 1934, three years earlier. When Marillo and Zalewski investigated the beach, they found two trails of blood that led from the beach to nearby streets. This has to be the victim's blood. Looks like the body was dragged here. You sure about that, detective? Well, Sergeant Hogan, we'll find out when we follow that trail, won't we? As the detectives followed the trail, a nearby witness asked them why. Hey, you guys know that's just dog blood, right? Dog blood? How would you know? I saw it, that's how. Some poor pup got hit by a damn car, started wandering around out of its mind. If that's true, where's this dog now? Did you do something with it? I wasn't going to touch that thing. Its blood was everywhere. Just follow the trail. I'm sure you'll find it. Sure enough, the police found the dog in question at a local gas station. Worse for the wear, but still alive. Detectives were forced to conclude the body hadn't been dragged to the beach, meaning it had to have floated to the beach after being dumped somewhere else within the lake. After looking for potential dump sites, detectives soon realized that the Kingsbury Run sewer system fed into the Cuyahoga River, which emptied out not too far from the beach where the body was found. If the killer had dumped the body in the Kingsbury Run sewer system, it could have floated out to shore from there. Marillo turned to the coroner for more evidence. The autopsy was handled by Dr. Samuel R. Gerber, who found that the arms and neck had been disarticulated neatly, although there were several hesitation marks where the killer's knife had lingered during the cuts. Hesitation marks hadn't been seen on earlier victims. On May 5th, shortly after the autopsy, the lower torso was found floating in Lake Erie near East 30th Street. This piece was closer to the Cuyahoga, making it even more likely that the body had originally been dumped in the sewer system. Gerber found that the legs had been disarticulated at the hips. There were also some weeds and dirt on the internal organs, which led him to conclude that the torso had been lying on the ground for some time before it hit the water. Gerber estimated that the victim was 25 to 35 years old. She had medium brown hair, had been pregnant at one point, and had lived in the city based on the particles of soot in her lungs. With this information, Dr. Gerber prepared an overview of the torso killing case. Although he left out the Lady of the Lake killing, as he hadn't been able to investigate the body. In his report, Gerber argued a sexual motivation in the case was difficult to evaluate and by no means clearly defined. Murillo disagreed. Dr. Gerber, the sicko doing these slings has to be doing it for sexual reasons. 
The victim's genitals were mutilated, for Christ's sake. Only victims one, two, three, and finally our number seven had mutilated genitals. That's three murders where your pattern doesn't hold true. But that's four victims where it does. That's still not a pattern. As the month went by, while Marillo and Gerber argued about the killer's motives, the case developed even further on June 6, 1937. 14-year-old Russell Lauer was taking a shortcut from the movie theater to his home on Scranton Road when he cut through a trash dump by the Cuyahoga River. As he was walking, he noticed something glittering within a heap of trash. As he got closer, he saw it was gold teeth shining in a human skull. Lauer called the police, informing them that he had found the eighth victim of the Cleveland Torso murderer. Detectives James Hogan and Orly May answered the call. Okay, there it is. Let's clean it up. Looks like there's a whole skeleton here. Not all of it. No arms, no legs. A rib's missing too? God, do you really think this is the torso killer? If so, it's an old killing. This has been here a long time. The body was discovered under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge in what was left of a burlap bag that also had part of a Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper in it. Police combed the area, coming up with a dirty white cap, the sleeve of a dress, and a toupee of kinky black hair. Coroner Gerber ruled that the body had been killed in early June 1936, probably before victim number six was fished out of the Kingsbury-run sewers. There was no sign of trauma or bullet wounds. However, the head had been removed from the body, and it had been placed in a burlap bag, just like the third victim, Flo Palillo. Gerber's autopsy found she'd had dental work done. Five of her teeth had been removed before death, and she had two gold crowns in a bridge. That description didn't match any missing persons, so they released the info to the press. And on June 22, 1937, they got a letter claiming to know the identity of the body, one Rose Wallace. The letter claimed that Rose Wallace had that same dental work done decades earlier. In fact, the dentist who had performed the work had been dead for 15 years. As such, the dental records that could have confirmed the ID had gone missing or been discarded. While Gerber thought this wasn't enough information to definitively identify the eighth victim as Rose Wallace, Murillo had no other leads to follow. He began investigating the life of their potential victim. Rose Wallace had disappeared from her home at 2027 Scoville Avenue in the 3rd Precinct, on August 21st, 1936. That was three months after Gerber thought the woman had been killed. Gerber believed this was enough information to say that their victim was not Rose Wallace. However, Murillo felt that Gerber's projected murder date was simply incorrect. Murillo continued the investigation and discovered something interesting about the day she disappeared. What did you see that night? Some woman came by Rose's place while Rose was doing laundry. She said a man was waiting for Rose at the beer parlor, and Rose left right away. Left her laundry in the tub and everything. Left right away? Must have been pretty important to her. Do you know who she was trying to meet? I think they said the man's name was Bob. I don't know why they were meeting, though. The only man Rose has ever had a fling with was, uh, was old one-armed Willie. One-armed Willie? Tell me something. Which beer parlor was she going to? 
The one on East 19th and Scoville. Oh my god. HQ, we may have our first substantial lead in a long time. One-armed Willie was the exact same man who had been romantically linked with victim number three, Flo Palillo. And he wasn't the only connection Rose had to Flo. As police thought the beer parlor Rose had disappeared from might have been the same one Flo was reported as visiting before she died. Police rushed to interrogate one-armed Willie once again. However, after a lengthy investigation, they couldn't find any evidence that linked him to the crime. And he had alibis that cleared him from both Rose and Flo's disappearances. Despite one-armed Willie's innocence, Marilla was convinced these connections in the two victims' personal lives were significant. He spent weeks going to the beer parlor undercover. Yet no matter how deep he dug into Rose and Flo's past, he was unable to connect anyone to the crime as a suspect. At the same time, Coroner Gerber felt like Marillo's investigation into Rose was all in vain, as he didn't believe the ID was correct. Whether the ID was correct or not, Marillo soon had to move on from Rose Wallace, as victim number nine showed up on July 6, 1937, when a bridge worker at the Third Street Bridge spotted the lower half of a man's torso floating in the Cuyahoga River. He called the police, and they ended up fishing it out, along with the upper torso and both thighs. Over the next eight days, more body parts washed up in the same area. Police were able to piece together an entire body, minus the head, which was never found. The autopsy showed that decapitation was likely the cause of death, but while some cuts were as neat and precise as the earlier victims, others were more crudely done. Unlike previous murders, the killer had also removed the heart with a single clean incision and removed all the internal organs through the abdomen. Based on signs of arthritis in his spine, they believed the victim to be somewhere in his 40s. Unfortunately, no more information could be gleaned from the victim's corpse. The victim could not be identified and all potential leads were simply dead ends. With nine total victims, Murillo and the police grew more desperate, canvassing the homeless jungles of Kingsbury Run. But they were noticing a drop in the population. Many vagrants who could have had potentially useful information had moved on to other, less dangerous cities. Over the next eight months, police continued interviewing any potential witnesses, eventually interviewing over 1,500 people. However, none of these interviews led to any promising leads. The case had its next big development in March 1938. In Sandusky, Ohio, 60 miles away from Cleveland, a man screamed in horror as he saw a dog bound out of the woods with a human leg in its mouth. Cleveland police sent David Cowles, the department's superintendent of criminal identification, to inspect the leg. While in Sandusky, he got a tip from a worker at the nearby Osborne State Prison Honor Farm that the leg might be the work of a doctor named Francis Sweeney. Sweeney lived at a veterans hospital near the prison right outside Sandusky, although he often checked himself out of the hospital and would vanish for days at a time. Cowles recommended Ness and the Unknowns turn their attention to Sweeney, 
They quickly discovered that after he had been exposed to mustard gas during the First World War, he spiraled into mental illness. His wife had filed for divorce in 1934 after twice failing to have him committed to an institution. After the divorce, Sweeney had disappeared, periodically checking himself into the Ohio Soldiers and Sailors Home. Sweeney quickly began to look like a strong suspect. He was a large man, certainly big enough to have overpowered the victims. Sweeney even had a psychiatric evaluation that diagnosed him as having a deep, uncontrollable urge to perform surgery, something he had been trained to do in the military. Sweeney's strength, medical training, and psychiatric profile suggested he had both the means and the motive to commit the torso murders. There was only one hurdle, apart from the lack of direct evidence. Sweeney was the cousin of Congressman Martin Sweeney, who had been a vocal critic of how Ness was handling the torso case. If Ness had arrested Francis Sweeney, the papers would accuse him of using the case to pursue a political vendetta. Ness and the unknowns tailed Sweeney for the entire month of March, hoping to find concrete evidence that could justify an arrest. However, during that time, Sweeney did nothing to incriminate himself. Some of the investigators even began to suspect that he was just a harmless mental case. Then, on April 8, 1938, a woman's leg floated down the Cuyahoga River near Public Square, only a little downstream from where the last body had been found. Two and a half years after the discovery of the first body, victim number 10 had just arrived. Based solely on the decomposition of the leg, the coroner determined that the victim had been deceased for at least three days, and she was probably a woman between 25 and 30 years old. Two halves of her torso, both of her thighs, and her left foot appeared in the river nearly a month later on May 2nd. The autopsy surgeon noticed that while the dismemberment had been done skillfully, there were more hesitation marks than usual found on the victims and the killer hadn't removed the head with the usual care and finesse that he'd used in the past. Parts of this body had also been wrapped in burlap sacks, but this time they were sacks from a Maine potato company, Wheelbrand of Bangor, Maine. Given that these burlap sacks were their only real leads, police did all they could to track down the only Cleveland distributor of Wheelbrand potatoes, Unfortunately, the owner of this potato distribution company estimated he received upwards of 200,000 bags a year. There was no way to determine who those burlap sacks had belonged to. Their only lead was once again a dead end. Police could not identify their 10th victim. After two and a half years of failed investigations, the press lambasted authorities for their inability to close the case. The Cleveland papers accused the police of incompetence, and the public grew even more fearful of the killer because of this. Yet all the while, Ness felt confident that he had found the killer. The renewed public pressure pushed Ness to finally take action against the mad doctor, Francis Sweeney. He should be coming out any... Wait, there he is. Get him! What's this? Who? Get his arms. Drive. Without a warrant, the team took the law into their own hands and grabbed Sweeney off a street corner. They dragged him to a suite in the Cleveland Hotel. 
Ness's team included Dr. Royal Grossman, psychiatrist for Cuyahoga County, and David L. Cowles, head of the Scientific Investigation Bureau. With everyone assembled, they hoped to bring the case to a well-needed close. We'll find out what they learn about their prime suspect after this. And now, the conclusion of this unsolved murder. Between September 23, 1935 and April of 1938, the city of Cleveland had seen 10 people's corpses dismembered and discarded near and around the city's slum, Kingsbury Run. Elliot Ness was in charge of the investigation, and he was certain that the killer was a disgraced doctor named Francis Sweeney. In the early weeks of May 1938, Elliot arrested Sweeney in secret in order to interrogate him without any legal red tape standing in his way. According to David L. Cowles, the head of the Cleveland Police's Scientific Investigation Bureau, Sweeney was so drunk when he was snatched from the street that it took him three days to sober up enough to talk. So on the fourth day, the interrogation began. Cowles and Detective Lewis Oldag grilled him eight hours a day for an entire week. Sweeney, you can end this, you know. Oh, can I? What a joke. <laughs> you know what you I... You don't know anything. Let me out of here. You know what I think? You killed those people. Prove it. Sweeney wouldn't confess to the murders or deny them. Sweeney just kept demanding his release. Elliot Ness couldn't nail him on anything. Frustrated, Ness called Leonard Keeler, one of the premier experts on the polygraph machine. Keeler flew straight there and got to work testing Sweeney. Sweeney didn't object to the test. All right, let me calibrate this. Is your name... Gaylord Sunheim. <laughs> Gaylord? Who's Gaylord? No idea. Keeler questioned Sweeney for hours, and when he was done, he turned to Ness. He's your man. You're sure? I may as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything else. As far as Ness was concerned, he had the killer, although he brought in another polygraph expert from Detroit just to double-check the findings. Unfortunately, polygraph technology was relatively new at the time, and polygraph findings had largely been considered inadmissible in court. With no real evidence against Sweeney and the continuing problem of Sweeney's cousin, the congressman, Ness had to let him go. Well, Ness got more bad news when he got home from the hotel. Back in March, Ness and his wife Edna had traveled to Florida to set up an apartment for her so she could set up residency in advance of a divorce. She'd come back and continued the marriage. But when Ness returned from questioning Sweeney, she had had enough. You've been gone for an entire week. You told me you changed, but you went right back to your obsessions almost immediately. Please, Edna, I just... I know he's the guy. I just need to prove it. You haven't proven anything for two and a half years. Do you expect me to stick around waiting forever? Not forever. Just until I nail the bastard. I'm sorry, Elliot. I'm through. Edna packed her bags and left for Florida. With nothing left to lose, Ness doubled down on his work and ordered the unknowns to follow Sweeney. 
but Sweeney evaded his tales as much as possible and even shouted taunts about their inability to follow him. As they played cat and mouse with the mad doctor, the case grew even more dire. On August 16, 1938, workmen tilling land found the corpses of a man and woman lying on a dump by Lakeshore Drive. These were victims 11 and 12, and based on the state of the bodies, they had been dumped at different times. The man was a skeleton and was missing some vertebrae, hands, feet, and two ribs. It looked like parts of him had been disarticulated at the shoulder, hips, ankles, and wrists. The woman still had some flesh, but she was also badly decomposed. She had been dismembered into nine pieces at the neck, left knee joint, shoulders, elbows, and hips. But while much of the cutting work was the clean precision the killer had usually shown, the left forearm hadn't been cut all the way through and was dangling at the elbow. Police speculated that the killer had either been interrupted in his work or had just lost interest. These bodies did have more clues than the average torso killings. The woman's body parts had been wrapped up before being dumped in the water. Her head and torso were in brown paper, as well as a man's blue-striped coat, a page from the March 5th issue of Collier's, and a ragged patchwork quilt. The police went to work trying to trace the wrappings, but all of it proved untraceable. In the end, victims 11 and 12 provided no more evidence than the other victims. Through the rest of August, these new victims increased the public's demand to find the killer. The Cleveland press suggested the city offer a $100,000 reward for the murderer's capture, but the city law director said the city couldn't offer such a huge amount. The county then refused to offer a reward as well. The discovery of the two new bodies hit Ness hard. He was still convinced Sweeney was the culprit, but he hadn't been able to break him. And his unknowns had been chasing Sweeney around the streets of Cleveland for months, unable to find any evidence against him. Ness felt like he was being pushed to the breaking point, so he decided to do something drastic. Instead of arresting Sweeney, which he couldn't do without evidence, he decided to deprive Sweeney of his hunting grounds. Everybody get up. Kingsbury Run will no longer be a slump. Get up and get moving. At 1 a.m. on the morning of August 18, 1938, Ness and his men descended on the transients' camps, shining fire truck flashlights into the camps and sending in dogs to round up everyone inside. There were 25 police in the group armed with hammers and clubs, followed by Ness wielding an axe handle. They pounded on the doors of every shelter they came to. If the doors weren't open, they were kicked in, and anyone inside was dragged out into the darkness. The police only rounded up 30 men. Fear of the killer had already driven much of the homeless from the area. Hands at your side. Approach the desk in an orderly fashion. Provide your fingerprints and go in for questioning. If you have a job, we'll need to see proof. This is unconstitutional. We haven't broken any laws. I'll be the judge of that. Now shut your mouth and ink your fingers. Everyone Nessa's men caught was fingerprinted and questioned. If they could prove they had money, a job, or relatives, they were released. The rest were sent to workhouses, temporary homes where they would be forced to find employment. After the men were carted away, 
Members of the Animal Protective League came in to collect all their pets. They were followed by boys from the neighborhood who picked through the rubble for any souvenirs that they wanted. Last in were the fire officials, who soaked everything with oil. That's the last of it, Mr. Ness. We just want your word. All right. Let me talk to the men. For three years, three long years, our city has been terrorized by a vicious killer, preying on the weak and unwanted. Well, today, we say no more. Today, we put an end to the killer's vile work. And today, we destroy his hunting grounds. Burn it. Burn it to the ground. The flames tore through the camps, destroying the shanties and everything the men owned. Kingsbury Run was lit up with flames, taking with it everything the homeless men of the shantytowns had. While the raids were designed to try and find the killer, it also convinced the last transients to get out of Cleveland. It was clear they weren't welcome there. But the papers soon attacked Ness for burning the homeless camps. The Cleveland press criticized him for, quote, the jailing of jobless and penniless men and the wrecking of their miserable hovels without permitting them to collect their personal belongings, end quote. The news and plain dealer called for Ness to release all the homeless men and women from police custody immediately. The bad press only forced Ness into more desperate and morally questionable action. He decided to comb the entire area, but even with the threat of the killer, he didn't have warrants to enter every building. So Ness had each detective bring a fire warden with him, as fire wardens didn't need warrants to inspect buildings. And so his team combed the triangular 10-square-mile of the Roaring Third District, going into every building one after another. They were looking for the killer's murderous workspace or the victim's missing heads. All they found were families and residents crammed into every part of the buildings. Ness continued to work the case, finding nothing for almost an entire year. The public called for another investigator to take the lead, and in June of 1939, County Sheriff Martin L. O'Donnell rose to the occasion. He'd hired a private detective, Pat Lyons, to go over the info. Lyons found what he thought was a new clue, that three of the torso murderer's victims, Flo Palillo, Rose Wallace, and Edward Andresi, had frequented the same tavern. That led him to another tavern patron, Frank Dolezal, a 52-year-old Slavic immigrant who admitted that he and Flo Palillo had lived together for a few months before she was murdered. Based on this information, Sheriff O'Donnell acquired a search warrant and searched a room Dolezal had previously rented. There, O'Donnell's men found stains that looked like blood on some knives and the bathroom floor. Based on these findings, O'Donnell arrested Dolezal on July 5, 1939, and threw him in the county jail. A few days later, Sheriff O'Donnell announced more evidence against Dolezal. A neighbor of Dolezal's claimed to have seen a tattooed sailor and a man who looked like Edward Andresi entering Dolezal's room only a few days before Andresi's body was discovered. Dolezal also admitted that he and Flo Palillo had had sex the night before her body was found, only a block away from his home. Yet while some of this evidence seemed compelling... 
other evidence that O'Donnell presented was less than convincing. The sheriff claimed that Dolezal had once borrowed a butcher's knife, he'd once thrown a knife at a woman, and that he had a notebook in his room with 25 names in it, one of which was that of a sailor living in California. Despite the circumstantial nature of this evidence, the press praised Sheriff O'Donnell for his police work. The sheriff was pleased, and only a few days later, he came forward with a confession from Dolezal himself. Now go on and tell the public what you said to me. I killed... I killed Flo Palillo. We got drunk. We got in a fight. Over some money, right? We got in a fight over some money. She tried to... stab me? That's right. And I punched her. I punched her so hard, she hit her head against the sink. Bathtub. What? You said bathtub earlier. She hit her head against the bathtub. I thought she was dead, so I... I... cut her up to hide her body. And you almost got away with it. But we caught you, didn't we? Yet, several parts of Dolezal's confession didn't fit the facts. And much of his confession contradicted details of Flo's wounds found in the autopsy, as well as a timeline for the discovery of her corpse. After these factual discrepancies, Dolezal corrected those parts in a later confession. Then, after he'd been locked up for five days, he tried to hang himself, only to have the noose break. On the sixth day, the ACLU filed a complaint over Dolezal being held without charges. So the sheriff arraigned him without counsel in an office of the Justice of the Peace. After threatening to sue the sheriff's office, Lawyer Fred P. Sokoop was able to visit Dolezal in his cell. Now, Frank, I'm a lawyer and I'm here to help you, but I can only help you if you tell me the truth. You didn't kill Miss Palillo, did you? No. No, I didn't. They threatened me, blindfolded me, gagged me, kicked me, beat me, all to get me to confess. I didn't do a thing to poor old Flo. Sokoop brought these complaints to the sheriff... But the sheriff denied everything. Soon after, a chemist from Western Reserve University tested the bathroom stains and found that they were not human blood. Dolezal was rearranged for the lesser charge of manslaughter. But before he left the county jail, Dolezal was found in his cell. He'd hung himself with a rope made from rags he'd hidden in his clothes. An autopsy showed that he had four of his ribs fractured, presumably from the beatings. The only public suspect for the torso killings was no more. And as all this drama played out, no one noticed that the torso killings had stopped. Victims 11 and 12 would turn out to be the last two official victims ever found. Perhaps Ness's burning of the shantytowns had removed his prey, as Ness had hoped. Or perhaps the killer had just moved on to other pastures. The Kingsbury Run drama had played out from 1935 to 1939, but the mystery was never solved. While nobody else would be murdered, the case stuck with the people most involved for the rest of their lives. Elliot Ness was denied the glory of finding the killer. He still believed that Sweeney was the culprit, but he kept his theory a secret, presumably to protect himself if word of his unofficial capture and interrogation of Sweeney ever got out. 
It seems unlikely that Murillo knew about Sweeney, although rumors of Ness's secret suspect had become well-known throughout the Cleveland Police Department. Ness's career took a downward slide after the burning of Kingsbury Run. This slide only got worse three years later in 1942 when Ness was involved in a car accident. He refused to give his name to the police, but a reporter noticed Ness's personalized license plate, EN1, on the incomplete police report. Soon the papers were ablaze with articles on the Ness cover-up scandal. Shortly after, an unrelated sex worker case led to criticism that Ness had done nothing to clean up sex work. This accusation was blatantly false, and embittered over his treatment in the press, Ness quit, resigning from law enforcement altogether. Detective Murillo continued investigating the Torso murders for another year after Ness walked away. Then, in 1943, Murillo retired from the force. He had worked for the police department for 25 years, and even though he was only 48 years old, he was legally entitled to retire. At the time of his retirement, Chief Matowitz told the Cleveland Press, He doesn't know what it is to be at home. He has put in hours and hours of overtime and never asked for a minute of it back. He has crawled through filth and dirt into cellars and attics. He has put more men in jail than any other man on the force. As for Ness's main suspect, Francis Sweeney checked himself into the Sandusky Soldiers and Sailors Home on August 25, 1938, only one week after Ness raided the Kingsbury Run shantytowns. However, he was free to come and go as he pleased. Ness continued to believe that Sweeney was the man behind the killings. In the 1950s, Ness partnered with Oscar Fraley on the book The Untouchables, which was later turned into a popular TV show. Naturally, Fraley eventually asked Ness about the torso murders and about the one that got away. I don't know if you want to talk about it, but I've heard rumors that you know who did it. Well, what you heard is damn right. Goddamn Gaylord Sunheim. Is that... is that his real name? Of course it's not his real name. I don't have enough evidence to use his real name, but I swear to God, I know it was him. I've always known it was him. It was clear that Ness had never forgotten about Sweeney, and it seems like Sweeney never forgot about Ness either. After Ness's death from a heart attack in 1957, his papers and scrapbooks were donated to the Western Reserve Historical Society, Among them, researchers found a letter and four postcards, each scrawled with rambling taunts and jeers for Ness. According to the postmarks, the cards were sent in the mid-50s and were addressed to names like Elliot and Big U.S. Ness or Elliot Headman Ness. One card had an advertisement for the book, The Handbook for Poisoners, glued to it. Another had the message, Be seen of ya sometime in U.S. Court of Peels. Well, they're confusing and impossible to decipher, but several of them were signed either F.E. Sweeney, M.D., or just Good Cheer, the American Sweeney. Was Sweeney taunting the lawman who failed to catch him, or simply mocking a policeman who'd held him prisoner for a week in a hotel room without a warrant? Sweeney stayed in the V.A. system for the rest of his life, being judged incompetent. He was committed to an institution in 1956. 
His records show a diagnosis of a schizoid personality, complicated by alcoholism and an addiction to barbiturates. He died in 1964. The Cleveland Torso Killer was never identified. Experts can't even agree on how many victims the killer had. Was the Lady of the Lake a victim? Were the Newcastle killings? None of the investigators could agree. Murillo thought the killer's death toll was as high as 33 victims, and one of those victims might be the Black Dahlia. He also believed the murderer was a railroad laborer, a psychopath, a marijuana smoker, and most likely a blonde. Ness was convinced it was Sweeney, and I have to agree. As a doctor, he had the medical training to cleanly decapitate the victims, and he clearly had mental problems that could have led him to kill. To top it all off, the killing stopped when he checked himself in to the old soldier's home. That's a big coincidence. I think if it was Sweeney, there would have been likely more murders over the years. Instead, I think it was an unidentified murderer living in Kingsbury Run, someone who moved on to better hunting grounds after Ness's raids. Whoever the murderer may have been, their torso killings have become little more than a dark footnote in Cleveland history. In the end, the killer chose the perfect victims, the poor and unknown inhabitants of a part of the city that many residents would have preferred to forget. Perhaps that's why the case is more widely remembered for its personal significance to the legendary lawman, Elliot Ness. It was the one case in his dramatic career where the criminal proved to be untouchable. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Muller. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Unsolved Murders is written by John Gutierrez and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, in alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Sky King, Harris Markson, Samantha Moore, Steve Pinto, Manib Raymond, Jack Shulroff, and Brett Schneider. Unsolved Murders.